Hello. Today, we are honored and privileged to be joined by Arsh Hamapur of the Hamapur Law Firm. He is a graduate of the University of Southern California, where he was a business economics major. He also graduated from the Great Law School of Southwestern School of Law. He has his own firm here in the Los Angeles area. He's won the Trial Lawyer of the Year Award both in Los Angeles, Orange County, Ventura. He's been honored on many occasions for his great work as a trial lawyer. He's had some of the spectacular verdicts in California in the last 20 years. Just tell us a little bit about your background. I know you have an interesting background, how you got to be a lawyer and what you did leading up to that. Just, uh, two immigrant parents. My parents were a little bit different from most Iranians. My dad came here in 1965. He uh, studied sociology, was going to university, had twins, me and my brother, and we had a very unique experience in that I really didn't even know what an Iranian was until I was 10 and came to Westwood, California and saw what Iranians were. So I just had a totally different upbringing. My parents were Muslim, wasn't really deeply connected in the Iranian community, kind of, you know, just different lifestyle. Not rich as some Iranians were, actually very, very poor, modest home, shared a bedroom with my twin brother until I graduated college. Uh, very humble beginnings, started working immediately when I could start working in uh, junior high school, worked all through high school, worked all through college, pretty much almost full-time paid for college, worked all through law school for a lawyer, paid for uh, law school with a bunch of student loan debts, uh, graduated in the middle of my class, not a very good student. I remember I took moot court in law school and the moot court professor said, you are not good at oral advocacy and you should probably do transactional law. So that's the beginnings of our show. Well, we're, we're lucky that you chose not to. Why did you want to be a trial lawyer? Honestly, I had never experienced anything where I was engaged short of wanting to be a rock star. So I always wanted to be a rock star. I always wanted to create music and inspire people and be in front of the big lights and be, you know, the best version of myself. And obviously my guitar skills weren't that good. And uh, I said, you know, I don't know what, what I want to do. So I said, let's go to law school. Then when I went to law school, I wasn't sure what area of law I wanted to do. A lot of people wanted to do entertainment law. That was very sexy back then. It was sexy when I was in law school. Too. Yeah. And then uh, I started going to seminars and I saw individuals like yourself and Gary Dordick. And I was struck by how normal and human-like and simple and effortless it seemed what you all were doing and yet you were getting such amazing results and making such a big impact in the world. I felt inspired that, hey, if these guys and gals can do it, I can do it. And it immediately became a passion of mine to be the best trial lawyer I could be. But when you started up, you weren't really working in a big firm and eventually you just said, I'm going to do it myself. What was that like? I always knew I was going to do everything by myself. So in law school, I worked for a lawyer. He was relatively incompetent. I won't name his name. Uh, he allowed me, because of his lack of interest or incompetence, to basically do a lot of work. So I was doing depositions, pleadings, everything inside and out of a, a case I was handling before I even became a lawyer. Then when I became a lawyer, 
he retired. He gave me 35 cases. These were small cases, you know, $3,000 to maybe the highest value one was $25,000, dog bites, car accidents. And I was a keen observer of other humans and other lawyers. And I saw that, look, the same amount of time you spend on that small dog bite case is the same amount of time you spend on a big case. It's just a question of getting the ball and getting in the big game, going from a high school basketball game to the, you know, to the pros. So there was never any doubt in my mind I was the equivalent of Kobe Bryant, even though I wasn't getting that shot. And my literal analogy was just give me the ball and watch what's going to happen. So fortunately, I worked my way up to getting the ball and got some dunks in. So I'm happy. Well, and you keep dunking. So let's, let's talk about trial. I've noticed that you use a lot of technology. Tell us about what you like to use and why you think it works. Well, anytime you can take a complex set of facts or process, a product or a, or a premise and why you know something dangerous occurred and how it could have been prevented, and you can show that step-by-step step visually so that a juror can follow, you, you know, you're doing your job because you want to make the process of you know, finding in favor of your client and rendering justice as easy as possible. And visual information works, people remember it, um, it grabs their attention, people learn visually. So anytime you can present anything visually, whether it's damages or liability, you should. It forces you to simplify the concept because it should be easy to follow and easy to understand. And so, you know, I, we, we've been using visual uh, approach to trials for the last 20 plus years, PowerPoints, animations, graphics, because they work. Can you talk about animations? I know you like to use them. Give us some examples of the things, not just the regular accident, which we all have seen, but some more creative ways you're able to use animation at trial to persuade. Sure, one, I mean, one really sort of mind-blowing animation was where we had a case where a truck parked illegally on the side of the freeway. And we were trying to show to the jury why is it that trucks should not park on the side of the freeway and how that invades the safety space all of us have if we move over a few feet because of whatever emergency reason, the radio, our kids are talking, coffee spills, mechanical breakdown, we may leave the road and we shouldn't encounter this huge truck that is gonna automatically result in serious injury or death. And so we wanted to sort of dramatically and simply illustrate that. So we just simply did a graphic where we showed the vehicle going off the road, hitting the truck. We had a scene photo that we then incorporated. What happened was the truck that left the roadway, the pickup truck, hits the illegally parked truck in a way that it decapitates the passenger. We obviously didn't show the decapitation, but we showed how that would happen. And then we had a second animation which showed what would have happened had the truck left the road and that large illegally parked truck wasn't there. And we dissolved it away and the truck would have just kept going on the side and nothing would have happened. And when we played it at trial, the defense attorney objected for a good three hours. And I know you have this experience where the defense objects as a tactic. And literally we tried every which way to lay a foundation. The defense was objecting in front of the, the jury consistently then finally, by the time the judge allowed the animation to be shown, the jury was relieved and happy and so focused on what is it that this defense attorney doesn't want us to see that when we played it, you heard gasps because it was just so powerful how we wouldn't be here had the truck driver not illegally parked his truck there. So, you know, simple animation like that, 
even with the defendant fighting to get it, uh, you know, keep it out, is super powerful and leaves a lasting impression with jurors on why you have a basic law that says don't park on the side of a freeway. Excellent. Let, let's talk about as you prepare for trial. Do you do focus groups? Do you do other mock trials? What type of things do you like to do to test out what you think is going to work? I, I'm fi- sometimes I do focus groups and sometimes I don't. You know, I, I don't think you really need to do anything and there's no magic formula or secret recipe to winning a trial other than know your case inside and out, have a good plaintiff and be on the right side of your case and you should win. Uh, There are times that you're not going to be able to see some of the unique issues that jurors will see because you're either too close to the case or there's too many facts that a focus group helps you identify the wacky, unpredictable or unimportant or prejudicial issues that jurors glom onto, and you want to make sure that you're seeing all of them before you start your real trial. So a focus group is very instrumental in identifying what is it that works, what doesn't work, and what are the hot button issues for the jurors. Things that sometimes you don't even predict, they come up with, help you tweak your presentation and get a better result. So, I mean, if you have time to do them and the resources, definitely do it. doesn't hurt. Well, what about jury selection? Do you, do you use jury consultants? Do you do it yourself? Do you try to use questionnaires if you can? How do you prepare? I love to use questionnaires because it makes the process of getting jurors negative thoughts or basic uh, you know, opinions on issues out so that you can do a, a quicker jury selection. I don't use juror consultants at trial because I rely on my instinct 100%. I'm not going to have anyone uh, second-guessing my decision-making. I do use other people in the audience as juror consultants, whether it's law students, friends, peers, paralegals, the client, the client's family, because they're going to see things like, oh, that juror's rolling his eyes when you're talking, or oh, that juror loves you, or they're paying attention. So, you know, the concept of using other eyes and ears, for sure. But to have a formal person called the jury consultant, I personally don't like it. But I think it is uh, helpful with other attorneys, uh, again, in identifying if you don't feel comfortable enough, this is a category of juror that's not going to be good for your case. This is something they're saying that's not necessarily good on liability or damages. So I'm not against them. I just personally am a kind of a solo guy. I like doing things by myself. When you try the case, do you have someone, another lawyer help you or are you always by yourself? It's 50-50. I don't mind having someone help me. My preference is to do everything. Obviously, you, you and I probably know we get sick of hearing our voice, so it's nice to have a fresh blood in there with a you know, different perspective. But my, I'm a control freak by nature, and I don't like delegating, and I really want to control the entire process, so I prefer to do it by myself. But I am a human being that recognizes that we can get input from anybody, literally anyone in the courtroom. So I welcome assistance from anyone and anywhere because it's a team effort, ultimately. Let me ask you this question. When you have a client that's been severely injured, do you like to have them there at the trial all the time? Do you only bring them once in a while? What are your thoughts about that? My preference is to never have the client there at all if you can help it. Have them there, if physically possible, for introductions during voir dire, and then have them there after closing. Typically, in our cases, you have some psychological harm component, and it is not appropriate. In fact, most defense experts will tell you to have your plaintiff sitting there hearing the defense saying the negative things, undermining their injuries. It's just not helpful to their mental health. And then you don't want jurors 
focusing on what they look like and what did they wear and how were they in the bathroom and did they smile, did they not smile. Every time I have a client present during trial, it backfires with the jurors picking up on things that are not in evidence and, and using it against us. So I, I totally agree. The one thing, another point that I worry is when you're making your arguments and you're saying how bad it is for your client and have them sit there, I think a jury would be turned off by that. 100%. It's, it's not respectful. And, and you cover that in voir dire. You let the jurors know my client's not going to be here because medically they say he shouldn't be here and because whatever the reason is, you know, and most jurors don't, they do understand they don't hold it against you. What do you think the biggest thing here in California is the threat to the plan of personal injury practice or what big things do you think? Just any time we restrict consumers' rights to bring lawsuits, so whether it's limiting class actions or preemption, um, you know, we're not seeing it directly in the type of single plaintiff cases that we're handling yet, but you know it's coming. I mean, when the federal government passes tax laws that are counterintuitive for the Republican agenda of minimizing taxes, but reduce the deduction of state taxes for California, New York, you know those are targeted towards essentially democratic, uh, you know, causes that fund democratic causes. So, uh, you know, we just have to be really careful uh, on a national scale. And the lawyers are always paying the most tax. They are, right. Let, let's talk about some of your cases. One of my favorite cases that you tried was a case in federal court in Orange County, Judge Cormac Carney, who's an old friend and a product liability case. Tell, tell us a little bit about that case. <laughs> it was a case that I, I would never in a million years have predicted that the outcome was the outcome. You know, a, a father uses a home heater because he doesn't want to spend um, money on the heating bill because the heating was one unit for the entire house and he wanted focused heating. And so he bought a space heater. The warning on the heater said, don't get clothes near it. And uh, unfortunately, clothes got near it in the middle of the night. A fire started and his wife died and his three young children witnessed the death of their mother and narrowly escaped with their life. And we had this difficult product liability case that no attorney would take um, that the defense manufacturer was literally there at the scene within a couple days because apparently the fire department has a policy across the country of letting these heater manufacturers know if there's ever a fire, they come and they start taking pictures, et cetera. So we had a, a product liability case where our client misused the product 100%. He violated the warnings. And yet I figured out a way to uh, win that case, but in a way that really was outrageous. There was a safety device on the heater that was supposed to turn it off in the, there's valve. a shutoff valve that if it got too hot, if there was a chance of a fire starting, it was supposed to shut off. And what we determined through some pretty dense research and scientific analysis is that on this type of heater, a radiant heater, a auto safety shutoff based on the temperature or internal temperature of the heater would not work scientifically. And no one knew this. It wasn't documented anywhere. It was kind of collaterally discussed in some scientific literature, but it wasn't like jumping out at you. And uh, to take that knowledge that here is a product that they sold, that they marketed as having a safety feature that the consumer thinks is going to prevent a fire, 
but that science tells you is not going to work. And then taking that information and basically showing even the head safety engineers at this company didn't know it, it was pretty exhilarating as a trial lawyer to get something so complicated, make it simple, and then show how it could have been prevented. And the jury agreed that this was, you know, a ridiculous result of a, of a company not paying attention to uh, the, you know, the limitations of its uh, devices and then marketing them in a way that act actively misled uh, the consumer. So it was a, it was a beautiful result in, in probably the most horrific case I've ever handled, you know, where a mother dies in a fire with her small children, knowing that she's in the house and not coming out. I mean, the, the yeah. trial judge really, when he was discussing and denying the defendant's new trial motion, you know, he really captured just like how hor horrific this was and, and an event that stays with this family for the rest of her life. So, well, How did you get $50 million for the wrongful death of the mother? Well, I told the jury, I said, you know, this is the most horrific event anyone can imagine. Hollywood couldn't create this in a movie. Um, it's not something that goes away. It's not like an arm. If you lose an arm, you can move on and adjust to it. Your mother, without any warning, you're you know, asleep, you're an innocent child, and your mother's been taken away from you in a fire in the most horrific way. And, you know, you, there will never be a day that you don't remember this fire for your own injuries, and that you don't remember what was taken from you in terms of your, your mom. And so it was an interesting case, because we had five minutes of voir dire. Literally, it's federal court, the judge gave us a few minutes to ask questions. My favorite part of the voir dire was the defense attorney was talking, the defendant was Sunday. And the defense attorney spent his five minutes talking about how many different products they make, coffee makers, hair dryers, and Electric blankets. like literally, and it was like, like, I guess he was trying to say we make all these products and they're all safe. And he says, is there anyone who's ever had an issue with one of our products? And one of the jurors raises his hand and he says, yes, uh, I have a sunbeam blow dryer and it started a fire in my condo last week. And I literally looked up and I, I'm not a religious person, but I thought like, is the Orange County courtroom is God, some powerful force looking down on me. And, you know, it was, it was pretty eerie, but, uh, you know, it was beautiful. Let me ask you this. I'm a young lawyer, let's say. I want to start my own law firm. What advice do you have for them? Partner up with someone that knows what they're doing and go watch them and learn take your case, do a joint venture, sit in on depositions, sit, it, sit on it at trial, watch how they interact with everyone, the court reporter, the videographer, the clerk, the judge, the witnesses, and then steal as much as you can, modifying it to be yourself, because ultimately, you know, the beauty of what we do is that every successful trial lawyer, male, female, the one thing about them is they are themselves. They're a unique version. There's only one Brian Panish, there's only one R. Shalomfor, there's only one Gary Dordick. But the reason we are all successful is that we're literally the best versions of ourselves. So for any young, old, you know, whatever lawyer who wants to do what we do, be yourself, but obviously learn how the, you know, the masters do it and then take what you learn and create your own version of that. What is your favorite part of being a plaintiff trial lawyer what's your favorite part trial i literally i was in fresno a, a month ago and i looked at my associate we're at some hotel and i said can you look at me and she looks at me i go what do you see she goes you're smiling i said do you know why and she goes yes 
And I said, because I'm in trial. I said, here's the deal. I mean, I have, we're now eight attorneys. I told them, I send emails all the time. All I want to do is be in trial. Please keep me in trial. Keeps me out of trouble. Keeps me sane. And it, and it maximizes my power on this in this universe is to be in trial. I love it so much. It's like an actor not being in a play or on stage. It's like, that's where I thrive. I don't even think. I don't need, it's like, it's not even like a chore. It's not a job. It literally is like a true love affair. I love being in trial. And I don't think that you can be successful as a trial lawyer unless your heart and soul is in it because the jury can tell. The jurors want a leader and they respect and gravitate towards the person in the room that is a leader, that is sincere, that loves what they do, that cares about the outcome, that isn't bullshitting them, isn't making stuff up, concedes what needs to be conceded. And yeah, if you are an authentic, nice, powerful human being, all human beings love and gravitate towards that. So if you're a, a trial lawyer and you get to be on the plaintiff side, the good side, you know, you're going you're gonna to do well. How do you deal with a judge that you're having difficulty with? You know, I find difficulty with judges, well, first of all, you have to be able to adapt. You know, there are difficult people in life and you can't react in a negative way. You always have to be respectful. It is their courtroom. There are ways that you can show that they can't bully you legally by filing briefs and letting them know that if they're going to make a serious error, you're going to take them on appeal and that the big picture is you are there to protect your client. But you can always do that with respect and with, you know, letting the judge know that's their courtroom and you're going to, you're going to modify whatever you have to do to comply with their rules. But that at the end of the day, you're there to get a fair trial. And typically, and most of the time, judges love having us in their courtroom. They're excited. You know that. You see other judges come in the courtroom. They're excited to have real trial attorneys because it's like, wow, finally we get to see some real, uh, a real trial with some competent attorneys on both sides. So majority of the time, judges love having you there. Sometimes you get a judge that's like, you know, I'm not going to let you do your woo-woo magic and you let them realize by three weeks, there's no woo-woo magic. I'm just better than the other side and I've got the right argument, you know, so. So you mentioned your turn, your firm is now up to nine attorneys. Eight attorneys. Eight, eight attorneys, attorneys yes. counting you. Yes. So what do you look for when you're hiring new attorneys? Has to be someone with a, a, a passion for what they do, self-motivating. Uh, they care about their work product and they care about um, the result. I was interviewing someone we just hired the other day and I said, we don't have timesheets. I don't check when you come. I don't check when you go. I don't really care. I don't want you working on weekends unless you absolutely have to. I, want, I don't want you to hate your job. I want you to love your job. I can tell if you're doing your work and doing your best based on the results, period. And so, you know, what we're looking for is just good, well-rounded, passionate human beings that really care about what they do. And unfortunately in life, we all know this, there's not many people. You know, the majority of the universe is willing to live mediocre existences because that's their comfort zone. I don't want anyone who's mediocre. I want all superstars in their own right uh, working for me. And I think our work product reflects that, as does your firm. Are you, are you looking for lawyers that, that did well in law school? Oh, I could care less. The, the, I don't think law school or standardized tests is a reflection of anything. You know, again, I think the majority of super powerful, successful people are people who once they found that one niche that they have passion about, they excel at like 5 million miles an hour and they really shine. And bad, poor performance is just a reflection of them not being engaged, period. 
And I totally agree with you. When you're getting your new associates, you're indoctrinating them in the culture of the firm. What, how would you describe the culture in your life? So funny. Here's the number one thing. Be nice. If I see you write a snarky email, I don't care what the defense attorney wrote. If I see you write a snarky, sarcastic, rude, disrespectful email, you will get a warning and then you will be fired. Everyone knows we are going to kick your ass in the courtroom on the law and on the facts, not in an email. We're not going to score any points by being rude or disrespectful. For example, I told myself the new hire, we don't ask for monetary sanctions ever, ever. I have never asked for monetary sanctions because when you put the defense attorney's checkbook at stake, their personal checkbook, it transforms that transaction into something personal. Whereas if you are just like, look, if you don't answer that discovery, I'm going to file a motion to compel. And if you don't answer that order, I'm going to strike your answer because what I want is to win. I don't want $2,000 from you. Not only does that help the relationship, but you know, we get referrals from these defense attorneys. They all want to be our friends. They all look up to us, the majority of them. They all respect what we do. And if you keep a professional relationship where you're aggressive, but not trying to hurt them personally, uh, I think typically that relates results in a long-term relationship where you know you may end up getting business from them, or they're your advocate when it comes to getting money. You know, they tell the carrier, "Look, this guy knows what he's doing, and he's the real deal, and he's a gentleman." And if they don't like you, they say, "Don't give them any money." Right, and then by the way, when they don't give you money, that's how we make a living. If we didn't have unreasonable insurance companies and unreasonable defense attorneys, we wouldn't be getting the results we're getting. So I always tell everyone. However annoying it is to be at a mediation where they offer you zero or 100,000 on a $10 million case, kiss them, go give them a hug because now you get to do what you do. You know, an old lawyer, Ned Good, used to say to me, they continually drag you into the winner's circle. I, that's a great expression. All right, so let's change gears a little bit. I know you said you wanted to be a rock star. I did. I know you have a, a DJ career going yes. on. So tell us about that. So, you know, I am someone that I believe that if you want to do something, you can do whatever you want. This is America. It's 2018. Literally, there is no restriction on whatever you want to do. So I have a passion and love affair for music. Uh, so I DJ and I also am producing music. And like literally, I tell my kids, I'm going to DJ Coachella. You know, people laugh and ha ha ha, are you going to do that? And it's like, no, dude, you don't understand. If I say it, I'm going to do it. And that's how I live my life is whatever I put my mind to. I think we all have the power and the ability if we do it right to achieve whatever we want. I mean, again, you can do whatever you want. This is America. So you're the Quincy Jones of the I, trial bar. I wish Quincy so, Jones. So what is, is your Quincy. nickname or your no nickname? I, you know what? Yeah. I have such a big ego that I've decided to stick with Arsh Hamapur because I want all the uh, you know marketing and accolades to go to uh, to that name. So if I become successful as a DJ and then get a trial out of it, wonderful. Well, I am sure that you're going to be successful in that, and I'm Thanks. sure you already are as you are a tremendous success in representing your clients. And the most important thing you do is make a difference for people. And we want to thank you for that. Continue to do what we do, what you do. We all look up to you. And thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank you. I mean, just to, you know, where I started my career to say, hey, I'm being interviewed by Brian Panish on his podcast. This, you know, major respect to you. You're a legend well, and you're one of the best. And I tell, actually tell my wife, ex-wife. I tell her, if anything happens to me, you call Brian.
Well, that might be like many of the cases I get for the person that doesn't have the case. Yes. But anyway, so much, such a pleasure to have you here.